0: The following is a special edition of Rick Flynn
1: Presents. Hi, this is Adele Bertet, and my new book is Twist, An American Girl. And guess what? I'm back with Rick for conversation number two, and I'm very excited that you're all here. Let's go. You're listening to Rick Flynn.
0: With a shout-out from London town, it's Rick Flynn Presents. And now, ladies and gentlemen, your MC for the affair, Rick Flynn. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is our second in a two-part series with our special guest, New Wave, a.k.a. Punk Rock artist, Adele Bertay, now turned author. And she has not only been in the new wave and punk rock business, she's recorded some disco dance singles, which I would classify as house music, music you'd hear at the club. And I don't think she would argue with that. Her new book is out right now. It's called Twist. An American Girl. And it is a memoir of her life. It went on sale March 14th, 2023. And the day after that, our first of two interviews with Adele became live for you at home to hear. And that was our episode 128, which went on the air on the 15th of 2023. This issue is our second show with Adele number 2 of 2 which is episode 129 that went on the week after our first interview on uh the first interview once again 315 March 15th this interview will air on 322 the book went on sale on March 14th 2023 so here we go it is a wonderful tale called Twist, an American Girl. Welcome back, Adele, and it's pleasure to have you back, and you sound great.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Rick. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I had fun last time, and I'm sure we'll have a good conversation this time, too.
0: Oh, absolutely. Now, what has happened, Adele, in your esteemed, humble opinion with punk rock, it's not it seems as though, or is it me, that that rebellious spirit of the punk rock bands like the Dead Kennedys, the Ramones, etc, etc, I don't see it much anymore. Is it just, is it time? Has it matured? Do you have an opinion on that at all?
1: Um, I think a lot of it has to do with a a lack of uh, uh, rebellion amongst young people right now. I think a lot has changed since the Dead Kennedys and the Ramones and Patti Smith you know, and, and that whole scene, um, we didn't have the internet then. And today, because of the internet, I think people's attention is so scrambled, and everybody's vying for our attention every three seconds, there's something new to look at. And, you know, we've, we've kind of become addicted to our screens. And, um, you know, in the old days, you heard, you heard about people th- through word of mouth, or you heard their records in the clubs. And sometimes, if we're lucky on independent radio, I don't think that's, I think the case is that younger people today, and I can't speak because I'm not young, I don't know what's really going on, but I feel that it's a real internet culture now and less about rebellion. The rebellion is more about memes, memes on social media, you know, which is unfortunate because even even Obama said when Obama was the president, he said he was shocked by the uh, lack of protest music in America. Oh my, and,
0: he yeah, said that. Punk,
1: yeah, he did. And punk rock was always a form of rebellion of, you know, teenage and young adult rebellion against the status quo. And it's, it's uh, just surprising to me that today our status quo is um, kind of punishing you know, uh, in terms of the political arena. It's almost like the politicians have become the new celebrities, you know? I hope not. (laughs) Oh, Lord,
0: no. I hope not. You know what I always thought caused all that? Too much of mommy and daddy's money.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that's a big part of it as well.
0: Yeah, but then we had this. You see, I didn't think we had that spirit of what I call Vietnam War rebellion. Yeah, you, you remember mm-hmm. uh, Country Joe and the Fish and all of these. Yes. You know,
1: be yes. the first
0: one on the block to have your boy come home in a box. Yep. Uh huh. Yep. Oh boy, they they told it like they wanted it to be told. Yeah. It's
1: like like, you know, Bob Dylan's Masters of War and, you know, the great songs by Joan Baez. I mean, there were so many great singers. Buffy um, St. Marie was one of my favorites. Oh, she yes. Amazing.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I will tell you that um, I, I didn't think we had the spirit of rebellion in the youth. And then all of a sudden, you're going to recall, and I know you're going to remember, just, oh, not that long ago on that George Floyd situation with Mm -hmm. the knee to to the neck, killing him, all hell broke loose. And I felt like we were back in the Vietnam War era again. I did not think that too much of mommy and daddy's money was happening then. I began, I thought that we had more, the rebelliousness of the youth was coming back and slowly but surely they said, we're not going to take this. We don't want it. Let Let's get rid of it. Uh, are you with me or no?
1: I am. I'm totally with you. And, I, and it's, I think I don't, I can't say for sure, but I'm seeing a lot of marches now since this young man, Tyre. Tyree. I can't, Tyree. Yeah, yes. Tyree, yes. And I'm um, And I. And I I'm hoping that perhaps this will start another big movement because the violence in America, I mean, if you go to Europe today and you talk about being an American, they look at us as the ugly Americans, the violent Americans. And, and you know, it's true. We are the most violent country on earth. There have been more than 39 mass shootings in January alone, mass shootings, yet the Republican politicians won't pass those most simple gun regulations where people, you know, who have mental illness can't buy a gun or where weapons of, you know, AR-15s and AK-47s cannot be purchased. I mean, they turn it into, oh, they're taking our guns. That's that's BS, you know? We have to to be able to face ourselves and understand that the violence in this country, we cannot abide this. I mean, I'm surprised that people aren't afraid to have their children go to the mall for fear of them getting murdered by some... And
0: and the beautiful... uh, I've been there. It could have been me. Uh, The beautiful... Mall of America, the largest mall in this country. It used to be the largest in the world. I think Uh Dubai now holds that honor. But you have to admit that Mall of America is a tourist destination. I loved it there. And and it could have been me. They were shooting up the place.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I didn't know about that particular shooting. There's just so many of them. That's the other thing, you know. We get so distracted because we're being pummeled by. all of these news items about people being shot, you know, it's just, uh, or beaten to death like Tyree. And, uh, you know, it becomes very oppressive um, to to have to listen to this. And and what do you do? Do you completely turn off the news and, and don't pay attention at all? How do we as citizens how can we stop this aside from writing to our politicians and marching in the street? I mean, maybe we really need to all be in the street. You well,
0: know? I'll tell you, back when some idiot <laughs> excuse my french but that's just the way i'm going to call it shot john lennon one mm-hmm. of lennon's dear friends and close friends was a guy harry nielsen Yes, and yes, he and I love de- nielsen he yes. went to great extremes after that to go to work on establishing some type of, of gun laws. Do you recall? Mm-hmm. He worked as you-know-what off to do it, and he later found out, and other people came out and said what he did was he couldn't get it off the ground. It was just, uh, it was wasted effort. I hate to say yeah. it. I, any effort is good, but they said he couldn't get anywhere.
1: Yeah, it's... Uh...
0: And it wasn't his fault. They weren't blaming
1: him. Sure, of course. No, no, it, you know, it's, I think that there's a lot of dark money and power in this country, um, that it makes it, and, and, you know, in terms of what we see on the media too, that makes it very hard for people who believe in peace and equality to, um, you know, be the victors, you know, uh, there's, there's a kind of a, an investment in violence and, um, it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's so puzzling to me. Also on a spiritual level, it's, just very hard to to um, to face it all, every day. These news items, you know.
0: It's, um, I quit watching the evening news. I'm sorry. I'll read yeah. it. I'll read about it. But uh, the evening news—it was too depressing for me. I'll tell yeah, you, yeah, it, it was.
1: Yeah, yeah, I understand. <sighs> My. Yeah, I can all. O- I can only hear so much of it, you know, and without, without it affecting me on a deep level. So I try to like, you know, only listen maybe, you know, once a day, I'll check the news to see what's happened and it'll be another violent episode or a mass shooting and then I'll turn it off and oh, try to concentrate on other things, you know.
0: Right. Well, yeah. we have a system of incarceration, which many people, including the think tanks, the professors... And the criminal justice experts, they'll flat outright tell you, uh, Adele, that this is done for uh, capital purposes for money.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, do you yeah. agree with yeah. that? I do agree. Um, you know, there's a lot of money involved in the uh, incarceration system, and also prisoners work for. I think it's like less than fifty cents an hour. Um, for major com- corporations while they're incarcerated. I, um, worked with Wayne Kramer, who was a member of the MC5. Um, and Out he was Detroit. once. A- yeah, exactly. Yes, and, yes. Yeah. And Wayne was once incarcerated on drug charges and it's his vocation to take songwriting workshops into the prison system and work with, um, inmates on, uh, and teaching them how to write songs. So I was working with his organization for, for, probably about a year and a half and we would go into prisons and do these workshops with, um, male prisoners, and then I also did Linwood Jail here in in L.A., but we worked at Twin Towers, which is one of the uh, uh, most formidable prisons in, uh, well, jails in the U.S. And that's uh,
0: in L.A., right? That's
1: in L.A., downtown L.A., and it was such a moving experience because the men were so eager to be able to express their lives and their feelings about what had happened to them through song. You know, it was very moving. I would come out of those workshops occasionally just, you know, in tears from what I would hear. And funny enough, this is really interesting, Rick, the men were far more able to talk about their deepest emotions uh, in song than the women. The women were very shut down. It was really hard for them to express what they'd gone through. And women are in jail for very different crimes than men are as well. Men are more incarcerated for violent crime or um, break-ins or... And women are, are more about... Um, uh, you know, bad checks, passing bad checks, yeah. and financial crimes because they're trying to support their children without men, and it, you know, it's a, it's a very, very interesting to see the prison system from the inside out and see how systemic the oppressions have been in this country that create this system of incarceration and what happens to people, you know.
0: That's the truth, yeah. Yeah.
1: And yeah. that
0: passing bad checks that that has yeah. always been a, a a crime with a woman's name written right on it, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, because, you know, women don't, you know, for one thing, women don't get paid equally to
0: men,
1: which is still true. And women often get saddled with childcare and having to work. Um, and, and it's really hard for working class and disenfranchised women to support their children. So it will to, you know, uh, credit card fraud or passing bad checks or whatever they can do to support their child. You know, it's very hard for women in terms of the economic system and, and capitalism in this country. It's right. always, you know, it's skewed towards men. So, yeah. Very interesting.
0: The book from Adele Bertet, everyone, is called Twist, an American Girl. It is a memoir. That's what we're discussing today. You talk about being sent away to a place called Blossom Hill in that mm-hmm. book. And you said that 90 percent of the girls there were black and oh you loved it you you fit right in because they accepted you because you knew how to sing and they mm-hmm. called you what did they call you little
1: pimp they well the, they i had two nicknames in there i i, I was called little bit and also little pimpin oh
0: little <laughs> pimpin there you go yes yes yes
1: uh, yeah because we you know we 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 created a whole theater for ourselves you know some of the girls played as boys and some of the girls were you know the feminine ones and we created a whole society in there and um it was based on probably the most egregious and most macho and terrible things about men that we would adopt you know <laughs> the way we the way we would talk the way we would walk you know the way we treated women I mean it was absolutely ridiculous, but we, you know, we didn't hurt each other. Right. Um, but it was all play. It was all theater. Really.
0: Here's what you said about black culture:
1: quote, "It was
0: everything." To me, is that right?
1: That's yeah, because um, having been from white working class culture, black culture had so much more joy, and it had to do with music and laughter and humor. And to this day, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in Trinidad, which is a primarily uh, a black and East Indian culture, and it's so not to put down, you know, myself as a white woman being part of white culture, but my God, is it a different culture? It's so much more. Loving and warm and funny and musical and you know joyful. It's downright joyful. Right. And I think I think we're missing that in white culture. I I I see so much rage and anger in working class and middle class white culture from men. And I think it's because they we don't we don't have that. We don't have that same. It's a spirit um that that seems missing like when you take art away from people when you don't allow them or or you know when you have a child and you you bring them up to say don't be an artist don't be a musician you'll never make any money blah, blah 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 This, you know Art should not be an elitist thing. It should it should belong to everyone, and that creative spirit is what brings the joy. And if that creative spirit is missing, it's going to get replaced by anger and frustration. You know, and uh, that to me is the difference between what I see between black culture and white culture.
0: And down in Trinidad, I know they must have. Uh, you probably love those steel drums. Are they playing oh, them yeah. down there?
1: Oh yes, they they rehearse with steel bands all through the year to get ready for carnival. And, and, you know, people (laughs) gather in their backyards to make costumes and um, it's just It's just such a communal, beautiful, um, beautiful society where everybody helps each other and everybody's making art and music and writing and painting all through the year. You know, it's not just for Carnival, but it all all turns into this great celebration during Carnival that's um, absolutely amazing.
0: And you say you liked Dionne Warwick and Lady Mm. Soul, Aretha.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, weren't they the most incredible singers? I mean, Dion's still going, and Aretha, she passed. But um, the great legacy of, of music is that their 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 voices on wax will be immortal. Well, now digitally, but
0: right. <laughs> I uh, mean,
1: but but yeah. Barack in-
0: Barack brought Aretha to the White House, did he not?
1: Yes, he did. He did. Yeah.
0: Right. And Dion Warwick did a duet with Jeffrey Osborne, the one about where she talks about going to the psychic. Oh, oh I, don't,
1: I don't know that one. Yes,
0: yes, she did it with oh. Jeffrey Osborne. Um, huh. Oh, yes, it, I went to a psychic. Uh, what was, I can't think of it off the top of my head.
1: Oh, I'll have to look it up. That oh, it's
0: a fun. wonderful tune. Wonderful yeah. tune.
1: Yeah. And yeah.
0: Uh, forgive me, it's been a while since I've heard it, but uh, mm-hmm. just look it up and you'll find it. It's very easy to find. But that was just one. Of and I liked her slow ballad Deja Vu and I liked uh-huh. her with the spinners where she sang Then came you
1: Yeah yes
0: yeah. I used to know love before Then came you <laughs> with the spinners and one of the spinners was from Cincinnati Felipe Win
1: Ah oh, so nice. yes
0: yes yes uh,
1: Wonderful Yes
0: yeah. I was very familiar with the uh, with the lovely Dion. She was on Arista Records, and uh, so was Patti Smith, by the way.
1: Yes, yes. That's right, yep.
0: And then I wanted to ask you about, um, oh, back in my newspaper column when I was a writer, they brought me from Arista, I believe it was. They had signed an act that had a young man that that led it and his partner, Sylvain, Sylvain, (laughs) and they did, what was it? The New York Dolls. How do you call your lover boy? Boy. trash pick it up take your love away yes. yeah yeah. the new, the new york, york dolls,
1: dolls. yeah what did yes. you
0: think about them
1: i thought they were really really fun and exciting did and, you know um, them
0: did you meet them
1: i did not know the new york dolls no no yes. they were a little pre punk you know i mean they uh-huh. were kind of like they were kind of like harbingers of punk like in the early days around 74 75 Mhm. Um they were active in New York and um that's kind of when Patty Smith started and yeah it was an exciting time in New York but I didn't get there until 77. So that in 77 the bands that were becoming popular in New York were called the no wave bands which no I was wave. Part of. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And what was No
0: Wave as opposed to New Wave? What was the difference?
1: Well, the the difference is that punk and and New Wave were more pop-oriented. Like, if you listen to the Ramones, it's like a very three-chord structure, pop melodies. You know, in a way, they're traditional songs in that verse-chorus way. Right. And with, with No Wave, we just wanted to detonate all of the structures of music and do something, you know, just take it all apart. And throw it up in the air and see what happens. I mean, we we were really, um, we were a lot wilder than punk. We were noisier than punk because we would take, uh, you know, certain instruments like, for instance, I played the organ, but I played it like a percussion instrument. I didn't really play chords on it. So we kind of destructured music and and did something almost brutalist with it. It was really exciting. And it was also kind of um, theatrical because the band that I was in the Contortions we were um, very popular for a while in New York and we'd fill Maxis Kansas City and they'd have to do two we'd have to do two shows because uh, there were so many people attending the shows but our lead singer and sax player James Chance who became James White would go into the audience and pick a fight with a guy in the audience or try to kiss a guy's girlfriend and there'd be a you know a, a fisticuff fight going on in front of the stage and then a couple of us in the band would jump into it and there'd be like you know uh, these fist fights going on and, and, and you the, would jump into that oh yeah of course <laughs> <laughs> and, and then and the you're music nuts would just, girl you're nuts I know I it's a wild thing. I oh, was very, very wild. Wild um, thing. Yeah. Yeah. You like to do
0: the wild thing. <laughs> oh, my God. Now, here is a guy that has a last I heard. He lived in a loft in New York. I've never had the pleasure of meeting him, but I certainly did play his records. Among them, it's a nice day for a white wedding.
1: White wedding. You know, yep.
0: now I would call him pop because he yeah. crossed over so much, but do you call Billy Idol, was he punk rock? I think he leaned more toward just rock and roll and pop, or am yeah, I wrong? I,
1: no, I think you're right. And I think the uh, why Billy Billy Idol was looked at as a punk also was like, he had that perpetual sneer on his face. You no, know? He had the smirk. Yes. yes, he did. And, yes. and He also, you know, he was also, he dressed very punk as well. You know, he had the spiky hair and the outfits. And so in that way, he adopted like punk style, but his, you know, his songs also had that kind of gothy darkness to it. You know, like white wedding was, you know, it was a very dark song in many ways. And yes. Um, But but pop, you know, he he was a he was pop punk, I would say. Right, Flesh
0: for Fantasy. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, that was dark too. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. How about my boy over in the UK? And they love this show right here in the UK. I'm doing this for them. It's sex and drugs and rock and roll is oh. all my body really needs. Ian
1: Drury. <laughs> yeah. Ian
0: Drury. Yes. yes. Oh, you remember?
1: Oh, yeah. I saw him a couple of times in New York. Uh, I think it was in the very early 80s. I loved him. I thought he was amazing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that came from the album. You remember the album? If not, I'm going to tell it to you. What is it? New Boots and Panties.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, fantastic.
0: It's Ian Drury, absolutely mm-hmm. punk rock. And You Gotta Be Cruel to Be Kind in ah. the right measure nick. you gotta be nick low yeah. you gotta be yeah. cruel to be kind he was a punk rock all the way you gotta give me that much
1: yeah yeah no he was yeah but also pop that was a pop song
0: i would agree to be kind. yes
1: yeah yeah for sure <laughs>
0: yeah yeah and mm-hmm. then the world was moving she was right there with it and she was
1: oh talking
0: heads the talking heads with david byrne Absolutely. Isn't that, that was his name, wasn't it? B-Y-R-N-E, David Byrne, I believe.
1: B-Y-R-N-E, yeah. Yeah, Um, I'll
0: I'll go with that. What do you think about the Talking Heads? Were they punk or what were they?
1: They were probably, it's so hard to put a genre on some of these bands, you know? I think they were absolutely brilliant. And they they had pop sensibilities sometimes, but they played around with structures in such novel and, and interesting ways. I mean, some of those albums they did together. And I think Chris France and Tina Weymouth, the bass player, were also very instrumental in creating that sound with David Byrne, you know.
0: It was Um, almost a Parliament Funkadelic type of a blend in a way, wasn't it? Just more Uh, and more new wavy.
1: Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, I think they made some of the most extraordinary records of that time, you know, of the 80s. They were just genius. They were also really genius in the early days, too, like the first couple of albums. Um, Talking Heads, I think it's called Talking Heads 77, all their albums. I'm such a fan of their work such a fan. And I actually like Talking Heads much better than I like David Byrne's solo music. I mean, I like David Byrne. I think he's a very interesting artist, but um, nothing can compare to the music he was making with Chris and Tina uh, in my estimation.
0: Right. Now, we talked last time about an Ohio girl uh, that never quite was able to get off the ground in Ohio unless you consider the club work that she did. And frankly, I don't really know what was going on, but you're the second person that mentioned her to me. The first person was the guy who I've had on a couple times. I'm going to bring him back. He's just a fascinating guess. He's the guy that wrote Rocky Mountain Way with Joe Walsh. Um mm-hmm. Joe Vitali, his drummer. And ah, okay. yeah, Joe was on and he met Chrissy Hines. Because there, Joe Walsh and Joe was from that Canton, Ohio area, the Kent State area, where they went to school, and um, Joe Vitale, Joe Walsh, I believe they attended Kent State, and that's mm-hmm. where they had met Chrissy Hine, and she told them, you know, uh, this I'm not liking the scene, I'm not digging it, I'm going to go over to Europe. And it was mm-hmm. after she went to Europe that Chrissy Hine... I'm going to believe got into what was to be the pretenders and did brass in pocket and all this and that. Did you mm-hmm. did you believe that she had uh, uh, a lot to your liking or no?
1: I think Chrissy's absolutely brilliant and she's underrated in terms of women rockers. She, she's not talked about enough as like how important she was to women starting to play instruments in the late. In the late, mid late seventies and eighties, I mean there was Patty Smith, of course, who was totally innovative, and she was a poet and she just broke all boundaries and and paradigms. But Chrissy was an amazing guitarist and vocalist and uh, songwriter. And you know she she it was a very sexist scene in Cleveland and Akron for women in the in the seventies, and she got out of there and went to England, and um, things were changing fast in England as well. Well, in London, and she hooked up with um, the Vivian Westwood crowd, Malcolm McLaren, and met all the guys, you know, the players in the scene there, and, you know, just kept at it, persevered, and formed her own band, and came out with um, that first Pretenders record, which just blew everybody away.
0: Yeah, yeah, you boy. Know? Yes, it sure yes. did.
1: Yeah, she's just brilliant.
0: But you know what? The group Kansas, if you remember them, Carry On, My Wayward Son, Yeah, Philippines, Heart, their drummer who was the leader mm-hmm. of that band, he mm-hmm. went to England having lived in Kansas, which I guess all you do out there is watch the corn grow. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so he yeah. took off to England to try to get something started and he uh-huh. hated it. He, he hated the whole thing. <laughs> so finally, he yeah. came back to America. They got something going and then they all relocated, I was told, and went down to Atlanta, where uh-huh. I uh, believe. He probably still lives in that area now. So not uh-huh. everybody was able to go down and springboard off the British culture the way that Chrissy was. What do you right. think it was? It was just her style of music.
1: I think I think she just, you know, she was very brave courageous. courageous. You know, it takes a lot for a girl from Ohio to just take off and move to London. But her instincts were spot on and she loved the culture and the music and the fashion and she was able to assimilate into it. Some people just can't, you know. It's some people find another culture just too foreign. But Chrissy embraced it, and and you know, and it's interesting because it was very punk rock at that time with people like the Sex Pistols and everything. But again, there was that there was that pop element, even of the Sex Pistols. Sex Pistols, those were pop songs that they wrote. <laughs> so yeah. so you know, so Chrissy Chrissy, you know, she took the best of English culture and English and Pound Brilliance brilliant English musicians and you know I think I think it took a lot of courage on her part and perseverance and of course talent to do what she did.
0: No, I would agree. I totally would agree with that. David Bowie, were you a fan? I bet you you were.
1: Oh my god, of course. Yes. Of course. Yes. You know, he, do you know that his first American concert with Ziggy and the Spiders from Mars was in Cleveland
0: at no. the uh,
1: Yeah, I think it was at the Cleveland Auditorium. Uh And I believe it was 1974, 73. I think it was 73. But I was at that concert. And it was an astonishing moment because he brought theatrics to rock and roll and, (laughs) you know, came, came out in costumes and, you know, everybody that was in the audience, because, you know, his, his whole presentation was so androgynous and gay and mm-hmm. and the and the audience reflected that as well. So, you know, for the first time, you know, you had to be in the closet uh, in the 70s. You could not come out of the closet or you would be ostracized from your family. You could lose your job. It was very different than it is today. And um, I, re- I remember that concert where everybody was dressed glam and in glitter and it was an androgynous and gay and straight and everybody mixed up together and it was so glorious. Now, didn't
0: he discover Iggy Pop? He did. Right, yes. He
1: did, yeah.
0: And another act that I had worked with because... They asked me to interview them and I certainly did. And we published them and I still have it in my portfolio. And I believe that you know who I'm talking about because in your book, you mentioned them and they had a hit record with a song that I believe David Bowie wrote it. And he mm-hmm. said about the lead singer in this band, you with the glasses, I want you. <laughs>
1: Oh. I don't know who that is. Oh, who yes, you do. A... We're
0: talking huh. about Mott the Hoople, Ian Hunter. Oh, yes. Ian Hunter,
1: yes. He, yes they yes. had
0: a record called Once Bitten, Twice Shy. Yep,
1: yep. I remember them well. And all the young dudes.
0: All and... the, yeah, all the young dudes <laughs> is where that line came from. Hey, yeah. you in the center. He's talking about curly haired, permed hair, unless it was his natural hair, lead uh-huh. singer, Ian. And Hunter. Uh-huh. All wow. the young dudes.
1: Yeah, such a brilliant song.
0: Yes, and you liked uh, the Hoople loved Mata Hoople. Yep. Right. Yep. And, and you know, then another act called Great White came out and redid the hit that Mata Hubel had, Once Bitten, Twice Shy. And it was oh. that act that killed a hundred and some alleged people in that Rhode Island nightclub fire when they set off the explosions, the pyrotechnics oh indoors. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah, I that do. That was I a do, later yeah. incarnation. I believe of uh, wow. of the band. Um Uh, Great White. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a sad, sad thing. But yeah, yeah, there's good and bad in rock and roll, and you've seen it all. And I bring this up because a lot of what you say in your book, and we can talk about rock and roll because I love it. That's why I Mm -hmm. call this Rick Flynn Presents Confessions of a Showbiz Kid. If you're Mm. in it as long as you and I, who are about the same age, have been in it. It, you've mm-hmm. got stories to tell, do you not? <laughs>
1: yes, <Certainly>. definitely.
0: <laughs> but you know what? You say that no matter what you went through in life and your book twists, An American Girl, your memoir, it starts out with you as a child and continues up with the success that you had. And you said if there's one constant that ran through it, it was music.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes, actually though, um, it, it the book ends when I first meet Peter Lochner of Per-Ubu.
0: Right, and he and was your mentor. He, he was taught my mentor, you, right?
1: Well, yes, he did, and um, so it only goes the book. Bu- the book is about my childhood up until the age of seven, uh, 18. But then the next book, Peter and the Wolf, which has all already been published, is all about my rock and roll history with Peter Lochner of Per-Ubu. That book is for sale on Amazon as well.
0: Right, and, and tell that- them. About- about, I want you to tell them about why LaBelle matters, because you once said that that was, your, your, in your mind, your biggest professional accomplishment. Why is why, why LaBelle matters so good to you in your, your, uh, your mind?
1: Um, I think because of the fact that they there was no attention being paid to them uh, at a moment when a lot of women are, are you know are starting to write about uh, women in music in the last i'd say in the last like five five to six years lots of books are coming out about women in music written by women writers but I didn't see anything about label and to me label were probably one of the most profound female group in in musical history and the fact that nobody had written about them, I I just saw it as a tragedy, and I wanted to correct that mistake. And now, since then, people are writing about them and have been writing about them, which is wonderful. And it's not that they were completely ignored. I mean, people would do, you know, articles about them. If you look on Rock's back pages out of the UK, there's lots of coverage of them through the years, but never a book that really paid homage to what they represented for women at that time. So I'm, I'm really proud of that book. I mean, i'm I'm happy with all of my books, um, but I like being able to tell stories of people that were also really important to me. Like, I'm writing a book now about Sinead O'Connor's uh, LP, Universal Mother. It's for a series on Bloomsbury, um, 33 and the Third Series, where each book is about one specific album. And, you know, Sinead O'Connor's also uh, been... She's been through such tragedies. I mean, recently she lost her son. He committed suicide. No,
0: I heard that. Yeah. That's yeah. Sad. That's sad.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I do really uh, like you know, presenting stories and homages to people that I think are very, very important and, you know, maybe new ways of looking at them as artists or looking at their music. It's very important to me.
0: Right. Well, we have music as a thread that runs through your book, but here you go and here's uh, what I wanted to get your opinion on because you say, unfortunately, the American juvenile system is about housing unwanted and consequently troubled children in lockdown situations. There are no wise and caring attempts at tailoring programs to heal wounded kids inside what are now called camps which sounds deceivingly kinder than reformatories. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I think American the American way of dealing with social problems, re refuses to recognize the sole corruption of a brutal capitalist system that causes people such immense distress. We cannot heal when we're afraid to investigate the dark side. In other words, you think We'll just lock them up and what, throw away the key, the hell with it? Well,
1: um, that seems to be the case. Um, Actually, you know, there are a lot of uh, nonprofit organizations that do go into these institutions and help children. But here's the problem is that there are so many children that are abandoned by their families that end up in foster care. And the foster care system is so corrupt as well because a lot of poor families, families um know that they're going to get a stipend you know a monthly stipend yeah, yeah. to take in kids oh, no. i mean there's there's foster fam you know parents that'll take in like 7 to 8 kids for the money and then treat the kids horribly, you know?
0: You um, had a the, name for the kids in you, in your book, that you used to call all of you.
1: Uh, the Disposables.
0: The Disposables. Yes. And you know yes. what? I think of that Marilyn Manson song, We're All Disposable Teens. You remember mm-hmm. that? I want to mm-hmm. thank you, Mom. I want to thank you, Dad. for <laughs> for. Uh, and he talks about everybody being disposable teens. Oh mm-hmm. man, he survived abortion. <laughs> he's he's well. I, I you well, know what also, do you think of Marilyn Manson? Was he over the top? Or hey, I, I I would call him new wave punk rock. Or am I wrong?
1: I think I you know with all the stories that have come out about Marilyn Manson's abuse to women, I'm not yeah. a fan. I'm uh-huh. just not a fan.
0: Uh-huh. You know, I, I, I haven't heard from him lately.
1: Yeah, I, I was never a great fan of his music. you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Uh, And and uh, I just uh, whatever he went through as a child, he didn't he was not able to heal from it because he took it out on women. And I think that's just unconscionable, you know. Mm-mm-mm. And I think and I do think a lot of men do that. I mean, I think that I think, you know, I have a lot of compassion for men that they have to grow up to be care like the guys that, you know, are macho and the defenders of, you know, the families and they have to, they have all these responsibilities and they have to be a certain, you know, toxic way of masculinity that, it, it, you know, I have a lot of compassion for them. What I don't have compassion for is the fact that certain men will not face their own darkness or their own childhoods in order to heal so that they won't be abusive to women. I mean, you know, during the, um, during the uh, lockdown, when we just went through COVID, femicide, uh, the killing of women, of men killing their domestic partners and the brutal beatings that were going on, it just ratcheted up to like, uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but it, it, you know, I was reading a bit about it and it was astonishing, you know, if we don't heal our wounds or, or face the darkness of what we've gone through as children and what the system wants of us. We will continue to be an incredibly violent people.
0: My um, memoir, which is the book we're talking about that you wrote, my mm -hmm. memoir offers an intimate view into what can happen to abandoned children, what we go through in the system. I had some of the most joyous times while incarcerated as a kid due to the community of lost girls found there. We became family.
1: The Replacement
0: for those who threw us away.
1: Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. Mm-hmm. And that's what we that's what we do. And you know that's what punk rock was about in a lot of ways too. It was about you know kids that were rebelling against a system that was very punishing and us all finding each other like a tribe. Um, yeah, it's interesting how we do that. You know, community is so important.
0: Boy, isn't that the truth? Another gal. Something tells me I I don't know this. I'm going to take a wild guess. Yes, out of nowhere, that you had to have met a girl that the world knows as Blondie. Uh, Her name Uh, is Debbie Harry. Please tell me you at least met her once.
1: (laughs) Oh, are you kidding? I love Debbie Harry. I met her very early on in the early 70s, and when I was touring as a backing singer with Tears for Fears um, in 1990, I did the Sowing the Seeds of Love tour, which was just so much fun. And Debbie opened for us on the American leg of the tour, and I had sung background vocals on a couple of her songs on her first solo album, and I got to go on stage and sing background vocals with her on the tour as well, so yeah, um, Debbie's wonderful. I, I I absolutely adore her. She's just a great person.
0: Very really well. Really down
1: to earth. Yeah, really down to earth.
0: All righty. Another girlfriend of yours that I know <laughs> you know, and I loved her. Now she's not new wave, not punk, but boy did she score with a record uh, talking about what did she say? Uh, I, I've what, I've got a brand new pair of roller skates, and you got a brand new key.
1: Melanie Safka.
0: Mel- Melanie, she had a big pop hit there, and I understand you two are acquainted.
1: Um, Yes, we were acquainted, and I I haven't talked to her in ages, but um, I met her through a friend of mine, um, a Dutch friend of mine who lives in Amsterdam, and I I think Melanie's great, and she's written such good songs. I mean, remember... um,
0: Candles and the lay down candles in the rain. Lay down,
1: yep, and then, um, what was the other one?
0: Brand New Key. Um,
1: Brand New Key, Candles in the Rain, Look What They've Done to My Song.
0: Oh, yes, yes, Remember that? Oh, I love Vaguely, yeah. yeah it's that, been
1: years. It, I might have to cover that song for her because, mm-hmm. because you know, um, I'm sure she could use the royalties if they, if they ever get paid. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that would be a great song to, to cover, actually. Thanks Good. for uh, bringing her up, Rick. Thanks
0: <laughs> for bringing her up. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> that, that, hey, just tell me you'll pay me, and then when you don't pay me, I, I'll feel right at home.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you'll be one of us then.
0: Right. You talk <laughs> about being screwed And I don't mean sexually. I mean, (laughs) business-wise, you talk about the business being full of, let's just say, and let me clean it up a little bit, unsavory business people. How's that? That, That's a polite way of putting it.
1: Yes, yes. Well, you know, the... the The commercial music business is—it's very corrupt, and you know—it was really interesting for me to come from punk and no wave as a woman who was free to say whatever I wanted to say, to look however I wanted to look, to you know, have women lovers if I wanted women lovers, and then to be signed to a major label, and then it's like, no, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're not going to do this, you're not going to, and it was control, control, control. But also, here's here's a simple equation. Major record companies, maybe they have four A&R people. A&R people are the ones that, you know, choose uh, which artists to sign and what the Artist
0: repertoire. Artists and
1: repertoire. A&R. Exactly. A&R. So, you know, major company will have maybe four A&R people and about 40 accountants. What does that tell you?
0: Yeah. Well, I remember they used to have people that knew about music years ago when I was a kid running yes. the place. And then right. they started replacing them with these darn attorneys, you know? Yeah. That does not exactly know a note on a piano if you played it for him and, and sent him a telegram.
1: Exactly. They I, you know, know I,
0: nothing about music.
1: I know, I know. I remember talking to one A&R man. We were having a conversation and I, I think I brought up uh, Bessie Smith and Robert Johnson.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: they, they didn't know who the hell I was talking about.
0: Right, Robert Johnson, the old um, uh, blues, the blues artist. Yes. Yeah,
1: exactly. And Bessie exactly. Smith
0: was just a, a female, a black female singer, right?
1: Yeah, she was a brilliant blues singer, blues, and very influ- yes. yeah, influential on Billie Holiday, and you know, I, I, people th- today they, they just don't know history in general. They're they're just looking at their phones for whatever is eaten by you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's an,
1: yeah, there's an ignorance of, of uh history, which is sad because it's so rich. And why aren't we curious about all this richness? You know, it, uh, it's astonishing to me. I, I probably sound like an old Old buddy juddy Rick
0: no you know that's <laughs> where I wanted to go with this <laughs> okay. ma'am because you know what it sounds like to me it mm. sounds like you have gone through all of this these shenanigans that are in your book and i've not i've not come out with anywhere near even half of them and there's so much there i wasn't going to spoil reading the book for somebody who wants to read it i'm not going to do that but it sounds in the end right now you're number one you have Every reason to carry that proverbial chip on your shoulder after what you've been through, and I'll be damned, I cannot find it. You came out of it. You came out of it smiling. You have this sense of maturity, of love. You don't sound like you hate anybody. You sound like me. I dislike what certain people do and what certain people have done, but I don't hate anyone. And mm. I think you've matured into a wonderful, wonderful human being. And oh. where is that chip on your shoulder that you <sighs> should have based upon your family and you being basically a warrior of the state, once you're emancipated, in your book, you say when you became emancipated, they helped you to get a job.
1: Yes, that was really...
0: I didn't even know they did that. I thought well, they, they threw you out.
1: They they do now. I was fortunate. I was really, really fortunate that I had a, a friend of my mother. Uh, his name was Hugh Harris, and he was the head of public relations at NASA. He was a wonderful man, and he worked with the administration and helped me get an apartment when I was emancipated. And, you know, there were several of us girls that didn't have homes to go back to when we were ready to be released. And we, the, I don't want to give too much away of the book, but the reformatory was, was very close to a Veterans Administration hospital. So they got a few of us jobs at the Veterans Hospital. And I worked in the occupational therapy department with vets from Korea and World War II in the morning and then Vietnam vets in the afternoon. And it was a very revelatory experience for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's a reason for it in the book that I, I don't, I don't want to go into right now. But, um, yeah.
0: <laughs> right. We mentioned before the group Kansas. They had a big, big record. I know you know their hit single, amongst others. And it was called Carry On, My Wayward yes. Son. Were you yes. the wayward, the wayward
1: girl? I was. I think I was. And I think I probably will always be in a certain sense. But, you know, I lost that chip um, through finding the goodness in other people, Rick.
0: Where is the hate in you, if there is any?
1: there's none, there's none. I'm trying to also learn the difference between judgment and discernment because judgment comes from ego, like I'm better than, I'm better than you, you know, where discernment is more about understanding who people are and not, you know, you don't have to abide by what they do or approve of it. But um, sometimes we can't, you know, you can't change it. You have to accept that you can't change certain things and discernment is about understanding. So I'm trying to to not judge people as I get older
0: mm-hmm. and
1: learn more about discernment and empathy.
0: When you see cities set on fire, when you see this spirit of the George Floyd slash Tyree rebellion going on, you know, mm-hmm. a, a lot of that, yes, there's death involved, but it all started, my dear, with ego. If they yeah. would let the ego go and say, I can't put my knee on someone's neck eight minutes or whatever it was, it'll mm-hmm. kill the man. But no, mm-hmm. no, no, no. Hey, nothing will happen to me. We'll just do it. And you know what? Mm-hmm. People are getting sick and tired. We'll never live in our lifetime, you and I, to see it. But one of these days when we're gone and a new generation or two or three comes this qualified immunity is going to be gone. And these people doing this nonsense are going to be up for paying for their malpractice insurance out of their Mm -hmm. own pocket. Mm -hmm. And just like everything else, when you you lose one case and the rate goes up, you lose another case and the rate goes up. And your Mm -hmm. third one, they come to you and they say, "Uh uh-uh, we we ain't insuring you no more. You're a liability. Mm -hmm. And you better find another line of work. It's long overdue. Do you Mm -hmm. agree with me, ma'am?
1: I totally agree with you. And I also pray for the time that we won't see in our lifetimes when white people in America will cease thinking that black people are their enemy and will band together with them. Because that divisiveness is something that capitalism likes to keep in place. Keep them fighting so that we can keep picking their pockets and making them work, you know, like like chattel, really. So uh, that's a day I pray for because those two cultures together could be so beautiful if we, you know, became harmonious. Um, when,
0: when you mention race in this country people freak
1: i know i know they that, 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 freak that it's been system they've been systematically taught that we should be enemies mm. you know so um the yeah, good old
0: is, boys network
1: yeah yeah oh.
0: that,
1: that that's a shame it's just such a shame um wow
0: guess yeah. what time it is adele
1: Is it time for us to go? It's time for (laughs) us to go.
0: We're, We're an hour, and there we have it. You thought I was nuts saying, let's do two weeks on this. Do you understand now why I wanted to do it? Does it make sense to you now?
1: It does, because, you know, this has been more of a conversation, and I I just love it. I It's been really wonderful talking to you, Rick.
0: Oh, God bless you, girlfriend, because in your heart, <laughs> we're two years apart, you and I. I grew up when you grew up. I did not have the hard life that you had uh, as a child. But you know what? I look upon you as a lady who, like I say, you had talent. You did with it what you could. You had a whole lot of years of performing. And you know what? You're not done yet. You can write. You were in the movie Desperately Seeking Susan uh Madonna was in that movie uh too I believe yeah, both yeah. of you had had a part in there. And you even talk in the book, you like the British invasion and Mm. groups like, I think you mentioned the zombies, you know. And the
1: Kinks. kinks? Oh, I love the
0: Kinks. Ray and Dave Davies, the Davies brothers.
1: Yeah. Hey, can I mention something? Yes,
0: absolutely.
1: There's a documentary called All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, and it's about the life of Nan Golden. And Nan Golden is an activist who was once addicted to OxyContin.
0: Oh shit. Yeah. Oh my. And she
1: and she got clean and what she did was she found out all this information about the Sackler family who manufacture OxyContin, and she started protests against them and started a whole movement to take them down because they lied and said OxyContin wasn't uh, addictive. This movie is so brilliant because she was able to win against the Sackler family. She's like the Joan of Arc mm. of fight, fighting opium addiction in this in this uh, country. And I'm actually in that movie. That's why I brought it up because oh, I'm really? dancing with her. Yeah, there's footage of me dancing with her in 1977, and it's a great movie. It really is, and it's been nominated for an Academy Award, so I hope it wins, you
0: know. Wow, that is excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening for two weeks straight on this show to our guest right now, Adele Bertet, B-E-R-T-E-I. Her new book is called Twist, An American Girl. That is a memoir, Twist, an American Girl. It went on sale March 14. Our first show with Adele aired on March 15, and this is one week later. And we are now wrapping up our second interview with Adele. This is episode 129 of Rick Flynn Presents. It will air on March 22nd, and it'll be there in perpetuity if you would like to hear it uh, whenever you want, on demand. It's always there. Adele, I want you to tell them where they can get the book and tell them anything about obtaining the book or going to your website and then we'll get on out of here.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Rick. I mean, the the book is should be available at Barnes and Noble's and little mom and pop bookstores as well as uh Amazon and um yeah. <laughs> I I'm just so grateful for um for your interviews. And they really weren't interviews. They were conversations, and that's why I enjoyed them so much. Thanks, Rick.
0: Thank you, dear. And you know what? I want to just say thank you to the people. When I started this, I didn't know if I had an audience out there or not. And little by little, inch by inch, I have people in the USA. I have people in the UK. And now Germany is coming up. And then, oh. I, I swear to you, the German audience is starting to increase. I've got them all over the world sporadically, Canada and the rest of Europe, Australia, Japan. Thank you for everybody who listens and enjoys the show. But Adele, it would be nothing without the guests such as yourself who give of your effort. To entertain the people, which is what you've basically done your whole life, and God bless you. I love you for it.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Rick. All the best to you, and uh, uh, I'm excited to start listening to your show now that I'm aware of it.
0: That's all right, ladies and gentlemen. This is Rick Flynn speaking on behalf of myself and our very special guests for the last two weeks, Adele Bertay It's been fun, but we've both got to run. We'll see you next week with a brand new show. New shows every Wednesday. Thank you again, Adele. Thank you at home, no matter what country you're in. We love you all for taking your time and inviting us into your home or into your car or wherever you are. It's been fun. Thank you all. And we'll see you for the next show. Good night.
1: The proceeding was a Rick Flynn production. This is your announcer, Chantel Marie speaking.